The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. As we come now to gather around God's Word, we begin our series in Psalm 119. We begin to look through this beautiful psalm this summer. I invite you now to stand where you are to hear the reading of God's Word. We stand out of reverence. Uh, to the one who is speaking, not to me, but to the author of these words, God himself, our King. So let us now hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Every summer, it's the rhythm of our congregation to enter into a time of reflection on the Psalms. And for the last couple of years, Matt, Scott, and I have talked about the possibility of focusing on Psalm 119. Psalm 119, as you know, is the longest chapter in the entirety of the 66 books of the Scripture. It is 22 eight-stanza groupings of 176 verses written by King David, not in one sitting, but over the course of his lifetime, written in various contexts and various ages and various points of maturity along his life. But it is a beautiful psalm. It is a psalm in the Scriptures that speaks to the beauty and the wonder of Scripture itself. And so this morning, we are going to look at the first eight verses together, really by way of introduction. Introduction not only to Psalm 119, but to the theme and to the content of Psalm 119, which is God's Word itself. And then over the course of the summer, in the 12 weeks that we will be looking at this psalm together, we will see how it moves, how it shapes, how God's Word is and remains beautiful to us. Our outline this morning is very simple. We will be looking at the importance of God's Word, the context of God's Word, the function of God's Word, and the benefits of God's Word in our lives. So now as we approach the hearing, the teaching upon God's Word, May we ask his spirit to go before us. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you would speak. These are your words, not mine. And Father, as we consider your word, would you divide it correctly for us? Would we be humble enough to listen and where we need correction uh, to be shaped by you? Where we need to have life breathed in to receive that breath, and where we are growing already 
would we rejoice in knowing that you are the one who is at work. So, Father, we bless your name today. To you be all glory and honor. Amen. As we look at this passage this morning, we're going to be understanding the, the word itself. You can take an entire semester in seminary. You can take entire graduate degrees in the study of God's word. And so this morning, this will be at best a primer. I'm indebted to many who I have read, to Charles Spurgeon, to D.A. Carson in particular, for his outline of, of the entire psalm that I'm going to use pieces of it for our consideration this morning. So as we come now and look at the first point, that is the importance of God's Word, we begin where it begins. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, whose walk is in, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said that there is one singular theme throughout all of Psalm 119, and that is the Word of God. That it is a psalm about the Word of God. It is Scripture about Scripture. There is only one subject, and one subject is what we will cover throughout the course of this summer. And as you hear that, some of you are going, oh my goodness, this is going to be the most boring uh, summer in the Psalms yet, that we're going to study one topic for 12 different weeks. Well, let me go back to one of the greatest pastors and theologians of all time, Spurgeon himself, to hear these words that he said about this psalm. It is printed uh, in the outline that has been given to you, or the liturgy that's been given to you. And he says this, some have said of Psalm 119, that it lacks variety, but that is merely the observation of those who have not studied it. I have weighed each word and looked at each syllable with extended meditation, and I bear witness that this sacred song has no redundancy in it, but is charmingly varied from beginning to end. Its variety is like that of a kaleidoscope. From a few objects, innumerable variations and combinations are produced. In the kaleidoscope, you look once and see a strangely beautiful form. You shift the glass a little, and another shape, equally delicate and beautiful, is displayed before your eyes. It is the same here. What you see is the same, yet never the same. It is the same truth, but it is always placed in a new light or connection, or in some way or other, infused with freshness. And so we come and look at God's Word, and we recognize that all of Christianity and all of the Christian life pivots upon two principles concerning uh, the Word of God. There is uh, the formal principle and the material principle of understanding Scripture. The formal principle is that it says that it is the truthfulness of God's Word. It's understanding the truth, the inerrancy, the perfection, uh, the authority uh, of God's Word. That is the formal principle that we understand. But there's also the material principle. That would be the substance of the word. Not that all words, uh, word is God-breathed, and therefore it is authoritative, but then looking under that and in that to see the substance of God's word, which is the gospel itself. 
You see, in our culture today, people misunderstand that. They take these two principles and they may focus on the one and have an unformed or a truncated view of the other. Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, have a very high formal view of Scripture. They believe in Scripture. They base their lives on Scripture. But the material component of their understanding of the gospel is totally confused and therefore leads them into heresy and to not knowing Christ himself. On the flip side of that, many Christians have a very high view of the material content within or the material principle of the gospel. They believe in Christ. They believe in salvation. They believe uh, in the forgiveness of sins. But they have a very low view of the formal principle, and therefore God's Word in totality has very little impact on their lives. They believe in Christ, and they believe that they have their, as it were, fire insurance, but their lives aren't shaped by Scripture because they've misunderstood the formal and the material. We have to have both of these working together within our lives. A high view of Scripture and its authority and that we submit ourselves to it, but understanding fully the content of that very Scripture. And so as we come to the Scripture in Psalm 119, one of the very first things that you notice, and you don't have to go very far, you can look at just the first 11 verses. I know our passage is just the first eight. But you can go to the first 11 verses, and in those 11 verses, you find eight different words that David uses to describe the Word of God. It's that kaleidoscope. He uses one word and turns the kaleidoscope, and it shines a different light. He turns it again, and we get a different variation of the very same truth. And all of these eight words shape our understanding of God's Word. They are synonyms that highlight various dynamics of the very same subject. And I'm just going to give them to you. You can study them a little more on your own if you have a Bible dictionary or go online and begin to look at these. But the first is the word law. Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. The contemporary understanding of the word law is much more about the state placing a prohibition upon us, a demand from the state. The biblical understanding includes that idea, but it also includes that of instruction and teaching. Psalm 119, moving down into verse 33, says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, that all of Scripture considered the teaching. So when you hear the word law, as a contemporary American hearer, a Western hearer, very often in your mind you go, oh, the law of the Lord. That's the restrictive Ten Commandments only. Well, it's inclusive of those, but it is the fullness and the beauty of all the stories of Scripture. It includes all the Psalms. It includes all of the Torah. It includes all of the New Testament. All of the beauty is the law of the Lord. The second word is testimonies, verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. God is giving testimony to himself by way of revelation. It is God bearing witness to himself and to his work in creation. And so we have his law, we have his testimonies, we have his precepts, the third word there in verse uh, 4. We have, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. These are particular instructions that have mandatory power. These are, not instruct, these are not suggestions. These are not if you feel like doing it. These are not given your context. It may or may not apply, but these are 
mandatory. These are to be fully obeyed. Decrees would be the fourth word. Verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your decrees. Oftentimes, and in the ESV, uh, it is translated statutes. But this is God's pronouncement of things. Again, just a slight change. And they are his judicial judgments that God has decided upon and has enacted legally. The fifth word, commands, verse 6. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on your commands or commandments. Equal to a command in our contemporary understanding of that word. The sixth is ordinances, verse 8. I will keep your ordinances and do, utterly, do not utterly forsake me. Similar to decrees, his judgments, his decisions, oftentimes translated statutes, but just a little different, uh, a slight change. The seventh would be word, uh, verse 9. This is the most common usage in Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Our God, you see, is a talking God. He is talkative. It is his word that we are hearing that comes to its fullness and completion in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that it is God's word. It is his story. It is his speaking to us. And the eighth word is this. It's his promise. Verse 11, I have stored up your promise in my heart that I might not sin against you. Uh, this is very similar to the use of the word, word. And it's, again, God's story. And so you see, what we understand about Scripture, the principle of Scripture that I want you to get today and to begin to understand fully, is Scripture it is all God breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, all of Scripture is God-breathed. It is an extension. It is His self-disclosure to us. We cannot fully know God. We do not have the capacity, the ability to know God in our own self without Him self-disclosing to us, condescending, as it were, to us. We can see that there is a God in creation when Romans says uh, that everyone is held without, uh, without excuse because of creation. But to know God particularly says that we need to come to his word, that God reveals himself to us. And for many people in the world, for those who are not Christians, they would say, how arrogant of the Christian, how arrogant of you, Bill, that you can say you know God. That seems to be puffed up. That seems to be one who would say, wow, look at me, I know God. The only way that I can know God is that he has made himself known to me and spoken through his word to me. And others would go, yes, but there are, are many understandings of God. How is it that you say that you have yours? And they go back to the old uh, parable uh, of the men who gathered around an elephant. And they were all blind, and one touched his tusk and described the elephant in that way, and another touched his trunk, and another touched uh, his foot, and another his ear, and another his tail. And the, that story goes that you see no one can fully grasp truth. Truth is in the eyes, as it were, of the beholder. But here's a little question for you. What if the elephant could speak? What if the elephant said to the blind man, I'm an elephant? 
And the one would say, no, you're not, you're a tusk. And the other would say, no, you're not, you're an ear. And the elephant would say, no, I'm an elephant. It's the same way with us. For some in the world they see, and God is beautiful in creation, and God is this, and God is this, all the different dynamics and aspects of the same God. And people would go, see, I understand him this way, and I understand him this way. And God is self-declaring, he is self-revealing himself to us through his word. And so the word is of absolute import to all of us, to the Christian and to the non-Christian. You see, this is God's self-disclosure. It is his self-revelation. And if these things that we are reading, not just about Psalm 119, but of all 66 books, if these are actually from God, I can't say this with enough emphasis, If this is from God, then it demands our greatest attention. It demands our most intense response. It demands our our best concentration. If not, if they're not from God, who cares? Why even waste your time reading it? But if these things are God's actual words to us, we must give it our highest and best attention, and work with every bit of spirit-empowered effort that we have to understand these things and to apply these things in our lives. The importance of God's Word cannot be overstated. That's our first point. The second is the context of God's Word, particularly here in Psalm 119, the context of understanding God's Word. You see, David was writing the same that Peter was writing, that Christianity is on the margins and that the Christian was discouraged. That's what we see coming out of Psalm 119, that the Word of God is incredibly practical and it is formed within a world where Christianity, where those who believe in God through Christ, Old Testament saints are saved the same way as New Testament saints, by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that Christianity is marginalized, it's on the edge, that there is who are opposed to it, and that the Christian in the middle of it is discouraged. That's the context of these verses. Listen to some of them. Verse 126, it is It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. David is saying all around his country, all around his world, the law of the Lord is being broken, very similar to what we would see in our culture. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. He's discouraged. He recognizes that he is not of the majority. Verses 23 and 24. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. He's saying that the government, that that the kingdoms of the world are moved away from Christendom. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies. The insolent smear me with lies. Some of you can relate to that personally that those around you who don't know Christ will smear your reputation because of your stand for Christ. Verses 85 to 87, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. 
They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. David is saying, I am worn out. I am discouraged. I have almost been utterly wiped out from the face of the earth. And friends, what we are just coming out of in our study over these last eight or so weeks in 1 Peter and using the Everyday Church book as a companion is that the church in America, the church in our lives, the church in our day is no longer in the center of culture and no longer has any influence on the things around us. But so many people in our culture, they miss Mayberry. They miss the good old days of America. Uh, They miss America as the Christian nation, though many would argue if it were ever truly biblically Christian in its history. We have pity parties as godly people, for we find ourselves on the margins and in the minority But godly people have found themselves in the minority and on the margins throughout all of biblical history and throughout all of history in general. The apostles, it says in Acts 4, rejoiced when they suffered for the name of Christ. David wrote Psalm 119. And when he wrote it, he said, I would rather have Christ and his word than the love of the culture. He was saying, if I have God's word, and if I have the favor of the true king, then nothing else matters. For way too many people within the church, our church and the church at large, we have placed our hope in the White House, but the White House is not the hope of the Christian. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is not the solace for the discouraged Christian mind and heart. Psalm 119 teaches us that if we have God's word, and we do, then we have enough. If we have Christ, we have enough. A little question for you this morning and for me. Do our friends and family see that in us? That in the middle of a culture that diminishes the church and diminishes Christianity, would they be able to say of us that they see a hope? and a steadfastness that having God's word and having Christ is enough for us? Or would they say that our hope is in the things of this world that will never satisfy? They may pacify us for a little while, but they will never fully satisfy our souls. That's the context of God's word. It's written for days just like today in a world just like our world. It is of incredible practical importance to have the Word of God. So we see the importance of God's Word. We see the context of God's Word in a marginalized and discouraged church. And now we're going to look at the function of God's Word in our lives. The things that it draws out from us, the things that it draws out from our hearts. And the first is this, it creates a rejoicing within our hearts. The Word of God creates a rejoicing within our hearts. A praise, verse 7, I will praise you, O Lord, when I learn your righteous rules. Can you imagine yourself actually ever saying that? God, when I understand your rules and regulations, your precepts more, when I understand more about your word, I'm going to praise you. Our praise is tied to God. If I get this date, if I get this money, if I get this job, if I have this baby, if I get this, then I will praise you. If I'm healthy, I will praise you. And David is saying, if I learn your word more intently, 
It brings out within me a praise and a rejoicing. Scripture calls this out of us. It draws rejoicing out of our hearts and into our lives and over our tongues because as we study the Scriptures, what we learn about more than anything else is we learn about the God who created us, who called us, who loved us, who saved us, who's with us and has a place for us to go. And it just draws out in the way of your testimonies. I delight As much as in all riches, verses 14 through 16, I will meditate on your precepts, fix my eyes on your way, and I will delight in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Many economists would say that we're in a recession right now. And for many people, even within the church, uh, there is a frenzy of worry. And David would go, but you have his word. Why are you worried about the stock market? Why are you worried? It is better to have his word. It is better to have his law within my life than a thousand pieces of gold and silver So it calls out, it creates within us a rejoicing when we come to understand His Word. It calls out and it nurtures within us a deeper and more profound love for God from His Word. That it is this beautiful picture of, oh, how I love your law. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes, verses 46 through 48. We say that we love many things. David was not flippant in the use of that word. He wouldn't say, oh, how I love my pillow, and oh, how I love my donkey, and oh, how I love a chocolate cake, and oh, how I love this. He would say, I like those. I find pleasure in those. But oh, how I love the law of the Lord. Oh, how I love the Lord through his law, through his word. And so it calls out from us a rejoicing, a deeper and a more profound love And it calls from us a reverence and a fear. A reverence and an awestruck fear because of who God is. Scripture reveals the fullness of God to us. And we see not only His love and His mercy and His grace, but we see His glory and His holiness and His hatred of sin. And we tremble in His presence through His Word. Psalm 119, verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you. And I'm afraid of your judgments. Verse 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe. My heart trembles at your word. You're saying it doesn't matter. I don't tremble in the face of earthly princes and kings. I don't worry about them. But in front of you, God, when I come to your word, when I look into your word, my heart trembles. I'm awestruck because of who you are. Isaiah, when he came into the presence of Christ, the true and living word, it says that he looked up and he says, I am undone. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am totally unraveled by you in the midst of all of this. The Word of God functions within our lives in such a way that it calls certain things out of us. A deeper rejoicing, a deeper love, a deeper reverence for God. And by the way, as an aside, if that's the function of the Word of God, and yet we don't have much Word of God in our lives, we don't study it, we don't meditate on it, we don't memorize it, we, don't, we aren't in it, then friends, don't expect to have rejoicing and love and reverence developed much in your life. For it is a function of coming to His Word and to consider Him. And then the final point of our outline the importance of God's Word, the context of God's Word, uh, the function uh, of God's Word in our lives, and finally, the benefits of God's Word. And I'll be brief with these. The first benefit of God's Word is from verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, whose walk in, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. The first benefit of Scripture within the life of the believer is that of blessedness. Biblical blessedness is more than human happiness. It can be translated happy, uh, but it is more uh, than happy as we understand it. It is, we've spoken of before when we looked at the Beatitudes, a divine happiness, a particular kind of happiness. It is the supreme dimension of happiness, not a passing delight, but it is a state or a condition of the soul that is overwhelmed by the sweetness and delight and contentment that comes from being in the presence of God through His Word. We read it, and David was saying, oh, how blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord. The Psalter itself begins that way in Psalm 1. How blessed is the person who? It begins that way. And Jesus, in His great Sermon on the Mount, with the Beatitudes, said, how blessed are those who have these things. So the benefit in our life is a true blessedness. How many of you want blessing in your life? Well, the place to begin isn't by more action. The place to begin is by coming to God's Word. Not by doing more for God, but by being with God through His Word. Another benefit is that of liberation, of deep freedom that we experience the Word of the Lord offers a broadening of our understanding of the world around us. It gives us a proper anthropology of how we understand ourselves, how I understand me, how you understand you, how we understand one another and our interactions together. It expands, not reduces. For too many people, they come to the Word of God in a reductionist theory, that if I come to God's word, then I'm going to lose this privilege and I'm going to lose this privilege and my world will actually be shrunken down. And David would say this to you, oh, and I will walk in a wide place, not a more narrow place, but I have sought your precepts. And because I've sought your precepts, you set me in a wide place, verse 45. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. That there's an expansion, not a shrinking, happening within the life of the believer. Verse 100, I understand more than the aged. 
for I keep your precepts. It doesn't mean that we don't have something to learn from professors and those who are older than us. It doesn't mean that we're the smartest people uh, in the world. It means that against the natural mind, if you were to go to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, if you were to look at the natural mind, it's saying the believer, because of the Word of God, has a better and fuller and truer understanding of the world around them. Christianity brings about that proper understanding. In ancient times, ethics and religion were never tied together because in the ancient Near East, their religion was that of pagan gods uh, who had sex and adultery and were violent, and therefore there could be no ethic attached to them. It was religious only. You had your religious life and then your ethical life over here. And it was the same way in the Greek and the Roman, and it's the same way in our secular culture that you have the myriad of pagan gods within the Greek and the Roman culture, the pantheon of all of those gods who were running around with one another and they had rape and they had sex and they had incest uh, and they had all kinds of horrible things happening. And so the person who believed them, the religious person, understood that I would need to go and pay to Zeus, I would need to go and pay to Hermes, I would need to go and pay uh, to Artemis, I would need to go and do all of those things, but they have no effect on my ethic over here. It's the believer who understands and comes and recognizes that our life in Christ, our life with the Lord, changes absolutely everything. It is not a means of arrogance, but it radically shapes every bit of our frame of reference. It changes us in how we work, how we have relationship and how we deal with our finances. It is not just for Sunday morning. The relationship with God through His Word affects everything. Friends, I hate to break that to some of you. Some of you want just enough Jesus to get to heaven, but not enough to deal with your sexuality, not enough to deal with your dating relationships, not enough to deal with your workplace, not enough to deal with anything else, just enough to get to heaven. And God is saying through his word, it takes you into a wide place that affects everything within your life. The final thing I'll say, uh, the benefit is that of insight. We gain understanding and direction. Probably the most popular verse of all of Psalm 119 is verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. The writer of Proverbs picked up on that, David's son. And he said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. We gain insight for the life that we are to live. And so we see the importance of God's word, the context of God's word. The function of God's word which draws out of us rejoicing in love. And and then we see the benefit of God's word. That we are blessed. That our lives are expanded. That we gain greater freedom and insight into the world. So in conclusion, let me speak to two audiences that may be there this morning. The first is to the non-Christian audience, and you may have been listening in, and you are thinking, this has absolutely nothing to do with me. My encouragement to you would be this. Don't reject Jesus Christ without first reading his word. Don't reject Christianity without reading the Christian book. To come and to allow his word to do his work. A man who was influential in my early days as a believer in ministry was a man named Danny Lehman. 
strung out on drugs in the late 60s and 70s during the Jesus movement. He wasn't churched at all in Southern California. And one day he heard Stairway to Heaven, and he thought, I wonder what this heaven is all about. He went and spoke to a Catholic priest, and the Catholic priest gave him a copy of the Bible and said, read this. And Danny began to read the Word of God. Nobody had shared Christ with him, and nobody had given him the four spiritual laws. Nobody gave him a track. Nobody did any of that. He began to read God's Word. And the effect upon his life was that it radically transformed him so that he gave his life to Christ, that his mind, which couldn't remember anything because it had been burned out on drugs for so many years. Danny, when I last saw him in the 1990s, had memorized two-thirds of the New Testament verbatim that he had traveled the world, that he had his family, that he was in ministry. And so I'd ask you the question, you who would say that you don't believe in Christ or haven't read his word, would Danny say that his life was minimalized, was, was reduced, or was it expanded because of the work of God in this life? Read the Bible. And for you, the Christian, to me, this is so convicting Because finding time to read God's Word seems to get pressed out in our days, even in these days. D.A. Carson said, you cannot be a serious Christian unless there is some spark of delight in you for God's Word. He said he was in a laundromat one night many years ago washing clothes, and there was a young man sitting there reading the book of Amos. He said he looked at the man and said, why are you reading the book of Amos? He said, because I like it. Because I like it. That we read the law of the Lord, we read the scriptures, not because we have to. If you're a husband or a wife, you don't begin your day by going, Dad Gummit, I gotta fit 15 minutes in with this spouse of mine just because I have to. You delight in the presence of your beloved. If you're a parent, you delight in the presence of your children and children with those and friends with friends. We delight in the presence we want to be with and grow. We read God's word out of sheer delight. And for some of you, we, you would say, yes, but I have my quiet time every day. But is it out of duty or is it out of delight? It's not a magic totem that is to be rubbed in order to have your day go the right way. We read God's word because it is our delight and we hide it in our hearts. We meditate on what we have hidden in our hearts. We memorize the scriptures. We take them and hide them there. And then what we see about God's word in the life of the believer is that it forces us to deal with our inward sin. It forces us to deal with our lives. David wrote in verse 8 that we are not forsaken within our failings. Some of you have read Psalm, these first eight verses and thought, I have no chance. And there is no perfection in these things. However, there is a desire. Sadly, I sit with too many people who say things like, well, you know, Christianity is for sinners. And it is. But it's for sinners who take very seriously their sin and allow the law of the Lord to root it out who take very seriously the things in their lives, they don't approach it with flippancy at all because they recognize that the very material in part of Scripture is Christ who came and gave himself for us. 
So friends, I'll end with this simple statement. No matter who you are, the Bible matters for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for guiding us to your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture in Psalm 119. Thank you that David cared so much about the subject of your word that he wrote and penned all of these verses. Would they become a delight to us and not drudgery? Would they become something that is sweet to us as we come to your word? Even work in me. The sin of the pastor is that we approach your word in order to produce something to give to others. Father, produce in me and produce in all those who are listening this morning a love for your word that produces in us first a delight and a love and a rejoicing, a blessedness and an intimacy, insight and beauty. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word to us today. Amen.